Chapter Six of An Eye for an Eye by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Six: What I Saw in the Park. For a long time, sitting by the open window and looking out upon the starry night, we discussed the grim affair in all its details. The piano had stopped its tinkling. A dead silence had fallen upon the old world square, one of the relics of bygone London, and the clock upon the wall had struck one o'clock with that solemnity which does not fail to impress even the most dissipated resident of Gray's. As a bachelor abode, Gray's Inn is as comfortable and convenient a spot as there is in London, for there is always a quiet, restful air within. The gray, smoke-stained houses open on airy squares and until a couple of years ago quite a large colony of rooks made their home in the great old trees. It is an oasis of peace and repose in the very center of that gigantic fevered city, where the whirl of daily life is unceasing, where in the east and south toiling millions struggle fiercely for their bread, while in the west is greater wealth and extravagance than in all the world besides. "'I think,' said Dick at last, after he had put forth one or two theories, that if we manage to get to the bottom of this affair we shall discover some very startling facts. That's absolutely certain, I answered. The disappearance of the fair girl and the substitution of the other is in itself a fact absolutely unique in the annals of crime. Whoever effected that change must have been indeed a bold person. Didn't the people next door see any taxi drive up or notice anything being brought up to the house? No, that's the strangest part of it, I responded. Nothing was seen of any cab or conveyance, although, of course, there must have been one. And that inquiry by telephone was a most remarkable incident, Dick went on. You say that the inquirer was popping about to various call rooms, ringing up his confederates. That shows that there were two or three in the secret. It hardly seems feasible that the man who rang up from the Minories was the same as the one with whom you spoke at Putney. No, but the arrangement to meet in St. James's Park tomorrow is extraordinary, to say the least. Ah, my dear fellow, observed my friend, with a smile, I very much fear that that appointment won't be kept. Men such as they evidently are will hardly risk a meeting. On reflection, the individual, whoever he is, will see that he has given himself away, and his natural caution will prevent him from going near St. James's Park. Well, I only hope he does meet me, I observed. So do I, but to my mind such a circumstance is entirely out of the question. You see, he went to call boxes in order to avoid detection. The curious thing is that if it were the same man who rang up each time, he must have traveled from one place to another in an amazingly rapid manner. There might be two persons, he suggested. Of course there might, I answered, but I think not. The girl at the exchange evidently recognized the voice of the persistent inquirer. "'I'm glad I came down, very glad,' he said. "'I went over to see Lily, but she's gone to Ipswich with her aunt, an old lady who feared to travel alone. It appears she wrote to me this morning, but the letter has missed the post, I suppose. It will come tomorrow morning.' "'You had your journey to Peckham for nothing, then?' "'Yes,' he answered. "'She ought to have sent me a wire, just like a woman.' I knew Lily Lowry, the pretty friend of Dick Clue, very well indeed. I did not know that he actually loved her. There was undoubtedly a mutual friendship between them, but nevertheless he often would go for a month and see nothing of her. 
the daughter of a struggling shopkeeper near the elephant and castle she had been compelled to seek her own living and was at present assistant at a large cheap draper's in rye lane peckham setting the covenances at naught as became a london girl of the present decade she had many times visited our dingy abode i had always suspected that the love was on her side for she was always giving him various little things embroidered pouches handkerchiefs and those semi-useful articles with which girls delight the men they love but dick did not seem in the least concerned at not having seen her he was annoyed that he had had a journey on the chatham and dover for nothing and thought a great deed more of the mystery of Fillimore Place than of Lily's well-being. He was a pessimist in every sense of the word. Once he had told me the story of his first love, a strange tragedy of his life that had occurred in his days at Jesus. It was this, I always suspected, that had evoked from him the real ardent affection which a man should have for a woman who is to be his companion through life. Man loves but once, it is true but the love of youth is in the generality of cases a mere heart-beating caused by a fantasy begotten of inexperience. The woman we love at sixteen, too often some kind-hearted housewife, whose soft speech we mistake for affection, we flout when we are twenty. The woman who was angelic in our eyes when in our teens is old, fat, and ugly when, four years later, the glamour has fallen from our eyes and we begin to find a foothold in the world wisdom comes with the moustache. So it was with Dick. He had lost the woman he had loved in his college days, yet, as far as I could judge, none other had ever taken her place in his heart. Two o'clock had struck ere we turned in, and both of us were up at seven, our usual hour, for evening papers issued as they are at noon are prepared early in the morning. We were always at our respective offices at half-past seven. My first thought was of the meeting I had arranged in St. James's Park, and of my friend's misgivings regarding it. Full of anxiety, I worked on till eleven o'clock, when Boyd was shown into my room, greeting me merrily. His appearance was in no way that of a police officer, for he wore a shabby suit of tweed, a soiled collar, and an old silk hat much frayed at the brim, presenting the appearance of the typical Beery Fleet Street lounger. "'I've come to see you, Mr. Irwin, regarding this meeting in the park,' he said. "'Do you intend going?' "'Of course,' I answered, surprised that he should ask such a question. "'Why?' "'Well, because I think it would be best to leave it entirely to us. You might be indiscreet and queer the whole thing.' "'I don't think you'll find me guilty of any indiscretion,' I said, somewhat piqued. "'I don't apprehend that,' he said. "'But on seeing you at the spot appointed, the mysterious person who made the inquiry last night will at once get away, for he will know that the secret is out. We must, as you know, act with greatest caution in this affair, so as not to arouse the slightest suspicion that the keeping of this appointment is in the hands of the police. Then what, in your opinion, is the best course to pursue? I inquired. First, your friend Mr. Clue must not go near the park. I've already written him a note to that effect. Secondly, you must act exactly as I direct. A single slip will mean that the individual will escape, and in this we must not court failure by any indiscreet move. And how do you intend that I should act? I asked, sitting back in my writing chair, and looking at the shrewd detective who was known throughout London as one of the cleverest unravelers of crime, and who had been successful in so many cases wherein human life had been involved. 
Well, he said hesitatingly, truth to tell, I would rather that you didn't go to the park at all. Why? Because you could not wait about in the vicinity of the spot indicated without betraying a sign that you were in expectation of someone, he answered. Remember, you are not a detective. No, I answered, I'm not a detective, but I've had a few years training in investigations. I think I could disguise my anxiety sufficiently. I was extremely anxious to keep the appointment, and his suggestion that I should not go caused me disappointment and annoyance. But if you were seen waiting about, the man we want would certainly not make his appearance. He'd sent danger at once. We've evidently got to deal with a very cunning scoundrel. I could conceal myself, I declared. I promise you I will act with greatest discretion. Well, he said at length, after some further demur, I suppose, then, you must have your own way. Personally, I don't think the man will be such a fool as to run his neck into a noose. There's been some clever work in connection with this matter, and men capable of such ingenuity must be veritable artists in crime, and not given to the committal of any indiscretion. The voice in the telephone was a squeaky one, I think you said? Yes, weak and thin, like an old man's. Boyd glanced at his watch, a gold hunter with an inscription. It had been given him by public subscription in Hampstead in recognition of his bravery in capturing two armed burglars in Fitzjohn's Avenue. "'It's time we went,' he exclaimed. But as we rose, Dick entered in hot haste. He'd just received Boyd's note and had run round to my office. "'I've been out making an inquiry,' he said, having greeted us and expressed disappointment at Boyd's decision. I thought in order to satisfy myself, and so that I could use the information later on, I would go round to Professor Braithwaite at the Royal Institution and ask his opinion of the scientific apparatus found in the laboratory. I went down to Patterson, got permission to remove it from the house, and took the whole affair in a cab to the Royal Institution. "'Well, what's the result?' I inquired breathlessly. "'The result?' he answered. "'Why, the old Johnny, when he saw the paraphernalia, stood dumbfounded, and when he put it together and commenced experimenting, seemed speechless in amazement.' The discovery, he declared, was among the greatest and most important of those made within the last twenty years. He sent messengers for a dozen other scientific men, who, when they saw the arrangement, examined it with great care, and were equally amazed with old Braithwaite. All were extremely anxious as to the identity of the discoverer of this mode of liquefying almost the last of the refractory gases, but I, of course, held my tongue for a most excellent reason. I did not myself know. I merely explained that the apparatus had fallen into my hands accidentally, and I wished to ascertain its use. Then quite a flutter has been caused among these dry-as-dust old fossils, I observed laughing. A flutter, Dick echoed. Why, the whole of the scientific world will be in a state of highest excitement tomorrow when the truth becomes known. Old Braithwaite declared that the discovery deserves an immediate knighthood. Let's be off, Boyd said. He took no interest in the discovery. Like myself, his only object was to solve the mystery. "'Then I'm not to go?' Dick said inquiringly. "'No,' the detective replied. "'I'm sorry, but a crowd of us will queer the thing. You shall have all the details later. Patterson has promised that you shall publish first news of the affair.' Dick was sorely disappointed. I saw it in his face. Nevertheless, with a light laugh, he wished us good-bye when we emerged into Fleet Street and hurried away back to the offices of the Comet while Boyd and myself jumped into a hansom outside St. Dunstan's Church 
and drove along Pall Mall as far as St. James's Place, where we alighted and entered the park. The detective explained his tactics during the drive. They were that we should separate immediately on entering the park, and that he should go alone to the spot indicated by the mysterious voice, while I idled in the vicinity. I was to act just as I pleased, but we were not to recognize one another either by look or sign. I own, therefore, that it is with considerable trepidation that I left the detective on entering the mall and wandered slowly along beneath the trees while he crossed and entered the park himself. In that thoroughfare, which forms a short and pleasant cut for taxis going eastward from Victoria Station, there was considerable traffic at that hour. The sky was blue, and the June sun shone warmly through the trees, giving the Londoner a foretaste of summer, and causing him to think of straw hats, flannels, and holiday diversions. A bright day in a London park at once arouses thoughts of the country or the sea. With my face set towards the long, regular façade of Buckingham Palace, a grey picture with little artistic touches of red, the scarlet coats of the guards, I wondered what would be the outcome of this attempt to obtain a clue. That thin, squeaky voice sounded in my ear as distinctly at that moment as it had done on the previous night, a weird summons from one unknown. At last, just as Big Ben, showing high across the trees, chimed and boomed forth the hour of noon, I entered one of the small gates of the park and strolled along the grave-led walk down to the edge of the ornamental water, where for some minutes I stood watching a group of children feeding the waterfowl. Though trying to look unconcerned, my eyes were ever on the alert. I had expected to see Boyd, but there was no sign of him, therefore I strolled along, passing the end of the water, the exact spot indicated. There was no one there beyond half a dozen schoolchildren feeding the birds with portions of dinners brought with them from distant homes. Undecided whether to halt there, I kept my attention fixed upon the children, then, fearing to annoy Boyd by remaining at that point, I strolled slowly along the shore in the direction of Birdcage Walk. The detective had certainly concealed himself successfully, for although I kept my eyes on the watch I could discover no sign of him. The hour of the appointment had passed, but, not daring to turn back to look, I kept straight on until at some distance beyond I came to a seat beside the path, and there I rested, drawing a newspaper from my pocket and pretending to read. Unfortunately, from where I sat, at a point opposite the Wellington barracks, I could obtain no view of the meeting-place, and although Big Ben struck the quarter I was compelled to remain there, inactive, watching furtively the few passers-by. With a diligence perhaps unworthy of a journalist, I read and reread my newspaper for nearly half an hour, and in the course of that time the people who went along did not number a dozen. Of none of these did I entertain any suspicion. They included a couple of soldiers, two or three old women, a lady with a small child, a couple of nurses with children, a park-keeper, and a bank clerk with his wallet chained to his belt. Secreted somewhere in the vicinity, Boyd was watching but where I knew not. His surmise had unfortunately proved correct, I reflected, as the half-hour chimed. The man, whoever he was, was no fool. For five minutes longer I remained, when a sudden impatience seized me, and I folded my paper and rose. As I did so there came round the bend of the path, from the direction of the spot the mysterious voice had indicated, a slim figure in deep mourning, evidently a lady. She walked with an even swinging gait, 
not as one who was idling there, but as though with some fixed purpose. On her approach I saw that she was attired entirely in black, wearing a dress of the latest mode, the wide skirt of which rustled as she walked, a large hat with swaying feathers which at that moment struck me as somewhat funereal, and a thick spotted veil. Her black silk sunshade she carried on her arm, and as she came nearer I could not help being struck by her neatness of figure, her small waist, wide hips, and well-molded bust. I lingered at the seat to brush the dust from my coat, so that she might pass and allow me a glance of her face. She went by with a loud fro-fro of silken underskirt, and at the same instant I turned my gaze upon her and looked into her face. Next second I drew back, startled and aghast. Her hair was fair, her eyes large and blue, her features familiar. Even that thick veil could not conceal her marvelous beauty. I looked again, believing it to be some chimera of my disordered imagination. No, there was no mistake. It was an astounding, inexplicable truth. She was the woman I had discovered cold and dead in that house in Kensington on the previous night, the woman whose body had so strangely disappeared. For a few moments I stood rooted to the spot. The discovery held me petrified. Then, with sudden resolve, I moved forward and followed her. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com